verse 46 going on, then they came to Jericho. We are on the march to the cross. Okay, We are going south through Judea. We're coming now up toward, we're coming toward Jerusalem. We're about to go up to Jerusalem. And so we're at the base of it. We're at Jericho, 18 miles east of Jerusalem. Jericho in Jesus' day was said to be the most traveled intersection in the entire world. Jericho. Because of its location, it sits right, it's kind of a, a causeway between Europe to the north and to the west and Africa to the south. And lands to the east all merged, all came through, traveled through Jericho. It was a crossroads of all trade, of travel, of, of uh, even military transfers. Military units would go through Jericho. We're always marching through there. Add to this cacophony of people and this busyness, add the fact that we are coming up on, at this point in the Gospel, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, festival in Jerusalem... Passover. And Jericho is one beehive of activity, bustling, hectic, even think of it as just frenetic in all the energy and activity as Jesus is coming through. He's walking through that, and the followers are growing. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, I mean, people are just starting to stick and follow this Jesus. And a large crowd. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me! But many were telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me! I mean, you got to get the picture. It's almost comical. Shh, be quiet. Son of David, have mercy! Shh, be quiet. Son of David! And he's shouting, and they're saying, be quiet. And the more they tell Barty to be quiet, the more he pipes up. They should have called him Tenacious Bartimaeus, because he just keeps going. And what did he call Jesus? Son of David. Why? Because Bartimaeus believed this was Messiah. You don't call someone son of David. This was not like a common colloquialism in the culture. This was this is what the people believed Messiah was, son of David. And if you were talking about Messiah, you would use that phrase, Messiah, son of David. And so the overtone is clear. Bartimaeus believed in his heart that this Jesus going by, who he couldn't see, but he's there somewhere, this is Messiah. This is Messiah. And he cries out, son of David. And the people say, shut up. And he shouts louder. Why? Because Bartimaeus must have thought this may be his only chance to see Jesus. This is his only chance. And you know what? He would have been right. Jesus would not pass through Jericho again. He's on his way to the cross. He is on his way to his death, his crucifixion, to Calvary. I point out that because, gang, regardless of what the crowds say today, even crowds of Christ's followers, if the Lord stirs up something in your heart to do, you do it. Even if everyone else is naysaying. Well, that's crazy. No, God wouldn't tell you to do that. Ah, stop that. Be quiet. If you know the Lord is passing by, if you know the Lord is stirring in your heart, you do what He says and you let the chips fall where they may. You take a a line, a note from from Bartimaeus here. Too many Christians 
allow embarrassment or social discomfort or naysayers from among Christians to silence them. Don't be one of those. I'll give you one of the most common examples, prayer. Well, I'm not going to speak out in front of all those people. It's embarrassing. Would you talk to a friend in front of somebody else? Then why are we so hung up about just praying together? Well, what if I say the wrong thing? <laughs> I, you know, we got to get over this stuff. we got to get over embarrassment and start being bold in our relationship with Jesus. This is your Jesus. This is the Jesus you know and you love. This is the Jesus who saved your life. And so talk to Him. Don't let social discomfort silence your voice. James put it this way in James 4.13, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now he's saying don't put your faith or your trust in tomorrow. You say as the Lord wills, we'll go and do whatever. But here's the thing. Don't put it off for tomorrow. The Lord's stirring in my heart to do this, but maybe I'll do it next week. You know, because there are still some people who don't think I should. If the Lord tells you to do it, you do it. Don't wait to respond. Because tomorrow may not even come at all. Verse 49. Son of David, have mercy on me, he cries. And Jesus stopped. There probably should be a period right there. Because the language indicates he stood still. The cacophony of the crowd, the frenetic activity going on, and Jesus just stops. He looks at this guy. Call him here. So they called the blind man saying, Take courage, stand up. He's calling for you, Bart. Notice verse 50. He does what the rich young man could not do. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. What do you mean? This guy's a blind beggar. His cloak is all he's got. And he just tosses it because he's being called to Jesus. He leaves everything he's got and he's going to be where Jesus is. Very simple. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. He didn't spit on the ground and put mud on his eyes. He didn't ask you to see anything. And Bartimaeus said, No, I don't. And so he got some more mud and put more on his eyes. How about now? No, he just says, Go, it's done. Proof positive that Jesus can heal a blind person with no contact whatsoever. No spit. And I'm pointing that out because as we talked about before, notice every miracle of Jesus is personal to the man or the woman he's healing. Every one. They are all unique just as every person is unique. And for Bartimaeus, all he needed was to see and see immediately. And Jesus said, go, it's done. And boom, Bartimaeus could see and guess where he went? Right into the crowd following Jesus. He regained his sight and began following him on the road. So here's this big crowd following Jesus and a miracle takes place. And this blind guy that everyone knew was blind suddenly is now seeing him walking along going, hey, that's a nice shirt. Wow, that's a bright tie. Hey, you know, and he's walking along. What do you think that did to the crowd? It's got to be swelling now. Jesus is going up to die and the crowd is just getting bigger. And they're following along. Watch this. Chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem, 
at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives. We'll stop right there real quickly. Bethphage and Bethany were two small villages that were rather close together and often equated together. Bethphage and Bethany, you'd say those together kind of like Seattle-Tacoma or Dallas-Fort Worth. Bethphage and Bethany. Bethphage meant the house of unripe figs, which is significant. Bethany means the house of dates. So that's where the young men and the young women would go to... No, the house of dates like you would, you would eat. Verse 1, As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. Well, they went away and they found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, hey, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they, and they gave them permission. I have underlined in my Bible here, they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. Here's another key to discipleship. Do what Jesus told you to do. It may be weird. You may not know why. Go get a colt and bring it to Jesus. It's a little odd, but okay, maybe he's got something he wants to load up on the colt. Maybe maybe he knows the guy who owns the colt. They don't ask questions. You notice that? They just go. And when they are asked, they say, uh, the Lord needs it? And it worked! Cool! Jesus may tell you to do something that seems simple and inconsequential, like on a Sunday morning. Go talk to that person. That that must have just been me. Simple stuff. Go do this. Take care of that. Pay attention here. Do it. Because you have no idea when something that's inconsequential has huge ramifications, as this story does. This is massive. Because these two disciples, we don't know who they are. Which two? Were they two of the twelve? Were they some of the large? I don't know. But these two did what they were told. Very simply, and in so doing, they fulfilled a huge prophecy. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and He sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road. And others spread leafy branches, which they cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting. Remember the large crowd? They're all just this massive moving mob of people and Jesus in the middle riding on this colt. And they're shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! It's Psalm 118, the victory psalm. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And the crowd is stirred up to messianic proportions. They believe this is Messiah. Or at least, that's the indication. He's here. This is it. Amazing. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Jesus would have known this very well. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt. The foal of a donkey. 
Now you need to mule over this for just a minute. (laughs) There were two primary rabbinical schools of thought about the coming of Messiah into Jerusalem. In that day, two schools, either he would come, like Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, as a meek servant, or he would come as a majestic conqueror. What do they base that on? Many verses, but Daniel 7.13 is a primary one. Daniel said, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Oh, here comes the majestic conqueror. And there were rabbis who said... That's going to be the Messiah. And there are others who say, yeah, but Zechariah says he's coming humble and on a colt. That's going to be Messiah. And you know how they figured this out, how they put it together? (laughs) They said Messiah would come humbly to an unworthy Israel. Or he would come mightily to a worthy Israel. And the reason they missed Jesus coming, at least the Jewish leaders, was they thought that they were a worthy Israel. They assumed their own worth was so great that the only possible choice for Messiah's coming had to be as a great king, as a mighty conqueror. And so as he comes in riding this little donkey, the crowds were getting it. Simple faith. Childlike faith. It's got to be him. This is great. And they're falling. And all the leaders are going can't possibly be him because if it was Messiah, he would become he'd come in riding on a majestic steed. They were looking for a conqueror because they were so arrogant to think that they were worth Messiah coming as a conqueror. And I think we should take a lesson from that. I really do. A lot of Christians, okay, me included, felt like we lost an election last night even though our guy was a Mormon. (laughs) I mean, there's a conundrum for you. Mitt Romney is not our conqueror. Barack Obama is not the conqueror. And yet we keep looking for a conqueror. We need to look for Jesus. And He is coming as a conqueror, but not because we're worth it, but because He said that's how He's going to do it. He rode the colt very simply because He said that's how He was going to do it. And so He did. But it's interesting to me in this triumphal entry as it's been called, until now Jesus has always said, keep it quiet. Shh. Don't tell anyone. I know I just raised you from the dead. Please, keep this to yourself. (laughs) The most glorious moment of his ministry. Only three guys saw the transfiguration. And even with that, he told them, don't say a thing about this until after I rise from the dead. And suddenly, Jesus orchestrated this epic worship assembly. He orchestrates it and he's the conductor. He's the one who planned it. He made sure they got the donkey's colt exactly as the prophecy said. And he comes riding in. And someone might say, well, it doesn't count if he knew the prophecy. Faith like a child. Okay? 
He orchestrated the whole thing. Why does He do it? Matthew 21 verse 10 tells us that the crowd is in Jerusalem. All of Jerusalem was stirred. And the word stirred literally means seismic. Like an earthquake. I mean, the whole city of Jerusalem at this Passover was a buzz with this guy coming down the Mount of Olives across the Kedron Valley and up into the temple on this donkey's colt. Wow! This was huge! Why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus, the meek and the lowly one, the humble Jesus, all of a sudden, da-da-da-da! Why? Jesus is limiting Jerusalem and the Jewish people to one of two options. Either His coronation or His crucifixion. And there are no choices in between. You will either accept Me as your King or you will crucify Me but there's nothing in between. Two choices. You know, He does the same thing today. You either accept Me as your King or you crucify Me to yourself. No other options. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. No other option. And so today, sneaking into the city, skirting the issue, or slipping past the truth would only have left people lost. So Jesus orchestrates this event, comes riding into Jerusalem to force the issue. For the people, accept Me as your King. For the Jewish leadership, crucify Me. And He knew they would. Verse 11 says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple and after looking around at everything, He left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Bethany's on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. So every night He would go up over the Mount of Olives and down into Bethany. That's where He would stay. And verse 12 says, On the next day, when they left Bethany, He became hungry. Okay, Seeing at a distance the fig tree... In leaf, probably now he's at Bethany, the house of unripe figs. It's the name of this little village. So he's coming through Bethphage at this point. And he sees this little fig tree. And he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again! And his disciples were listening. Man, that seems uncharacteristic of Jesus. I mean, I've said that opening the fridge at times. You know. Or maybe you said that, you know, pulling into Wendy's and they're out of burgers and they're closing early. May no one ever eat from you again! How dare you not feed me when I want... But a poor little fig tree? What did this fig tree do to Jesus? It's just sitting there leafy and hanging out. And Jesus curses it. Now actually, you need to understand, before those brown meaty figs appear ready for picking in the summertime, in the spring, in the springtime, the early figs always appear. And you can see them in Israel. In fact, often, because we often travel to Israel in March, in that spring time frame, there are early figs on the trees. There are little bluish-green figs They're not very tasty, but they are edible. And they are filling, and they are sustaining. There's some nutritional value to them, and so a lot of times travelers in the springtime would grab some of the early figs, not for taste, but just for strength to get through the day. That's what Jesus was looking for. The leaves were there. 
And when you see the leaves are there, you you assume there's probably a fig of some kind on here. And he goes, and there wasn't a single fig at all. You could say the early figs prefigure the seasonal figs. (laughs) Tough barn. barn. Verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and uh, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach, saying, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. (laughs) And of course the chief priests and scribes heard this, and they began to seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. And if you were one of the apostles, perhaps you would have thought in that moment, Jesus is really in a bad sort today. I mean, he cursed a fig tree, and now he's turning over money to him. He's, he's losing it. What is Jesus so upset about? Gang, this was going on. The money changers, you Bible students probably know this, the money changers were all set up and the pigeons to be sold, and all of the ripping off. And there was a ton of ripping off and price gouging going on in the court of the Gentiles. The outer court of the temple. Which means any Gentile could walk through and see what the Jewish people were doing. And see the misrepresentation of God's glorious holy temple. And it it just incensed Jesus. It would make any Gentile walk in there and go, (laughs) they're no different than we are. That kind of thinking infuriates Jesus. But, note this, He does not fly off the handle. He is not out of control. James 1.20 tells us the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Well, Jesus always achieved the righteousness of God. Yes, He's angry, but His anger is a righteous anger. And let me remind you, These stories don't just follow a timeline. They are ripe with meaning and instruction. And remember what just happened back in verse 11, the night before. Jesus entered the temple, and after looking around at everything, He left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. He had already seen this. He was already fully aware of the money changers and the con artists and the ripping off going on in the court of the Gentiles. He saw it the night before. And He went home, to probably uh, to Lazarus' home there in Bethany, spends the night, I imagine prays about it, comes back the next day and cleans the temple. And by the way, he had done it before. Do you know biblically there are two, at least two cleansings of the temple? One at the beginning of his ministry, John chapter 2 tells us, and one at the end of his ministry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us. So this is now the second time he's done it. He's not out of control. He's not flying into a rage. He is clearing the temple with a righteous anger because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, only the passion of Christ. And David prophesied, Psalm 69, verse 9, Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. You want to know why I was upset on Sunday? In talking about the redefinition of marriage, you want to know why that really amps me up? Because it's an offense to my father. It's an offense to my father's house. It's not my definition of marriage. It's his definition of marriage that people want to mess with. And that offends me. Not because I have to be right and you have to be wrong, but because he already said it. And it's his word. And how dare we as human beings go contradicting 
brazenly the Word of God. I'm not okay with that. That gets my zeal going. Now I want you to think about what's just happened. Why did Jesus do what He's doing? Why did Jesus curse the fig tree in the first place? Why did He curse the fig tree? Was it just because He was hungry and it didn't have a fig? Curse you! Again, that's not Jesus. He had a reason. He had a purpose to it. The first reason is very simple. Biblically speaking, the fig tree represents, Bible students, Israel. And what Jesus is doing as He curses the fig tree is He is graphically illustrating the lack of fruit in leafy Israel. He prefigures the very judgment that is about to fall on Jerusalem. May no one eat fruit from you again. Because there is no fruit here. looks like there's fruit. It's attractive, big, beautiful Herodian temple. Lots of religion. Looks like something big is happening here, but there's nothing. And Gentiles coming into this place will starve to death on what you're serving up. So Jesus curses the fig tree, and it's an amazing picture. No edible fruit. But there's another picture the cursed fig tree paints for us. Read on in verse 19. When evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. This must have impressed Peter and the apostles because it's the only destructive miracle Jesus ever performed. Every other miracle of Jesus was healing, was beneficial, was powerful, the ceasing of storms, the casting out of demons. But this was just pure destruction. Interesting. Why did Jesus, or what did Jesus say as He cursed the tree? Look back at verse 14. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Number two, the fig tree not only represents Israel, it represents fruitless faith. Fruitless faith. Any tree, any tree that doesn't bear fruit, any faith or supposed faith or statement of belief that doesn't bear any fruit for Jesus is no good for anyone else. And so he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now this is tough, serious teaching. But if you're walking around claiming Christ and there is no fruit of of faith in your life, then perhaps you should hear this as a warning. Jesus saying, may no one eat fruit from you again. I'm not going to allow you to represent me. I'm not going to have you out there saying you're one of mine, but there's no fruit. And people come to you, and they listen to you, and they follow your teaching, but they're starving to death. Jesus says, bottom line, if the fruit's not good for Jesus, it's not good for anyone. And He's not going to let it be out there. Listen to how Jesus answers Peter here. Verse 22. Jesus answered saying to them, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Fruitlessness equals faithlessness. And if you are fruitless, you're faithless. And if you're faithless, you're fruitless. You cannot claim to have a faith and have no fruit. It's what James was talking about through his whole epistle. 
You know, show me by your works that you have faith. Faith without works is dead. There's no faith if there's not works, if there's not fruit involved. Read on. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all th- listen, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. And this has caused a little problem in the church today. And it's called the Word of Faith Movement. And there's a whole movement within the fellowship. You guys probably are aware of of Christians, of of this word of faith. Name it, claim it. You say it, and if you believe it enough, you get it. And if you don't get it, well, you didn't have enough faith. Word of faith. This is my opinion. But I think the word of faith movement pulls this out of context and completely misrepresents Jesus' words. What are Jesus' words? All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. What is the context? The context is not self-indulgent signs and wonders. The context is spiritual fruitfulness. Now don't miss this. He curses the fig tree because it has no fruit. And Peter says, look, the fig tree that you curse because it has no fruit is withered, it's gone. And, and Jesus says, have faith in God. Faith for fruit. Not faith for gifts. That's not the context here. He's praying, he's saying we need to pray that we would be more fruitful. More fruitful. Let me say that one more time. More fruitful. What are you talking about, Rick? What is the fruit of the Spirit? Keep going. Self-control. Against such things there is no law. You got them all. All together we got them. There are nine of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus' indication here is that shows that you have faith. What, power of healing? No. No. Love. Speaking in tongues? No. Joy. Being able to do great miracles? No. Peace. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are gifts of the Spirit. And God has use for gifts of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues. And miracles. And healings. And we'll get to 1 Corinthians 12. And all of that, I believe, is as important for the church today as it was for the church 2,000 years ago. But, he's not talking about gifts here. He's talking about fruit. And he's saying, if you will pray believing, your life will be more fruitful. More love. More joy. More peace. More patience. More kindness. Jesus says, I want you to be fruitful. And then he goes on from there. And he describes the best soil for growing the kind of fruit that he likes to eat in verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Why is that there? Because a forgiving heart is rich organic soil for a fruitful life. You will have trouble developing the fruit of the Spirit if you have unforgiveness in your heart toward another person. 
You've got to deal with the unforgiveness or the fruit is not going to grow. And Jesus says, if there's not fruit in your life, there is not faith. Whatever you ask, ask believing. Lord, I want to be more loving. Lord, I want to have more peace. I want to be more joyful. Lord, I want to be patient. I want to be kind. Go down the list. Pray for the fruit. And if those things are showing in your life, they are evidence that there is a strong faith going on. Well, we've gone pretty much the whole night and haven't talked much about election 2012. (laughs) We ain't done yet. Verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who have you who gave you this authority to do these things? <laughs> you know, miracles and stuff. Who gave you the right? Heal Bartimaeus. What's that? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. And you answer me, and then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. You know, seems fair. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. <laughs> Listen, be careful asking God questions because He's likely to turn around and ask you a question. And you're going to have to answer to Him. Answer me, He says. Well, they began reasoning among themselves, saying, uh, If we say from heaven, He will say, Then why did you not believe Him? But shall we say from men? Well, they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love Jesus. Now quickly, He asked them a brilliant question. This is more than just Jesus picking one off the top of His head and throwing it out there. Who is He talking to? Look at the context. Who's he talking to? Is he? What does verse 27 tell you? Chief priests. These are not the Pharisees. These are the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Okay? The Levites. Priests and Levites have now come to Jesus. Priests. Who was John the Baptist's father? Zacharias. What was Zacharias? He was a priest. What was John the Baptist then? A priest. John the Baptist was a priest. He was in the priestly line. His dad was in the temple performing his priestly function when the angel came and told him they were going to have a son and he was going to have to name him John. And he didn't believe, so he lost. He went mute until John was born. Zacharias was a priest. John the Baptist was a priest and a prophet. And what's going on here, gang, is the priests come up and they... They come up in their priestly authority. We're the priests of Israel. We know we have authority because we're of Levi. Where's your authority, Jesus? And Jesus, man, He gets them right up against the tassels. You know? He reads it like a book and He asks them the one question that they could not answer. What do you do with John the Baptist? Because he's a priest. Which means... Based on your assumption, because you're a priest, you have authority. John the Baptist, a priest, must have had authority if he's a priest. John the Baptist was both prophet and priest. And so Jesus asks the perfect question, and they cannot answer it. Because they didn't believe. 
in John the Baptist and what he was saying, but they knew the people did. And so they're between the proverbial, you know, here are the priests, rock, hard place, priests. How do we answer this guy? And by the way, Jesus' question to the priests implied that his authority came from the same place as John's, God. So he throws out this amazing question. And here's the thing. Jesus will always answer anyone who really wants to hear His answer and who genuinely accepts His authority. If you accept His authority, He'll answer you. If you really want to hear what Jesus has to say, He'll answer you. They didn't do either. The priests didn't accept His authority and they didn't really care what He had to say. They're just trying to get Him on a loophole. They're just trying to catch Him. But He'll answer you if you come to Him, well, simply like a child. Like a child. I really want to hear from Jesus. I really want to do what He says. Rick, what in the world does that have to do with the election? I wonder how many kids had trouble sleeping last night because of the results. How many four and five year olds were stressed out all day long about the State of the Union? You know what David was concerned about? That we didn't get pizza for dinner. He asked me, isn't there a diet pizza, Dad? (laughs) How many little ones are fearful of the future of this country? They're not. Why? Because mom and dad are okay. They got it. Faith like a child. That's what Jesus invites us to. A child knows there's somebody bigger who's got everything covered. And so do we, don't we? And I believe that's where we need to stand. As children who know our Father has got it all covered. Let's stand up together. I'm going to invite you to bow. And I'm going to pray, but I'm going to pray a passage. And I think it's absolutely appropriate for us here tonight. So would you bow? Father, first of all, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for the amazing, amazing teaching and character for the actions of Jesus. And thank You, Lord Jesus, for allowing us to learn from all of this and and giving us Your Word in such beautiful detail and such just graphic representation that, that we can listen and actually feel like we're right there. Thank You for that. Thank you for the power of your word. And and I pray this power would change us. I pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? In accordance with the working of the strength of His might which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies, far above, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. 
And He put all things in subjection under His feet, under Jesus' feet, and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. In Jesus' name, Amen.